The book of Genesis. It's the first book of the Bible, and its storyline divides into two main parts. There's chapters 1 through 11, which tell the story of God and the whole world. And then there's chapters 12 through 50, which zoom in and tell the story of God and just one man, Abraham, and then his family. And these two parts are connected by a hinge story at the beginning of chapter 12. And this design, it gives us a clue to how to understand the message of the book as a whole and how it introduces the story of the whole Bible. So the book begins with God taking the disorder and the darkness described in the second sentence of the Bible, and God brings out of it order and beauty and goodness. He makes a world where life can flourish. And God makes these creatures called humans, or Adam in Hebrew. He makes them in his image, which has to do with their role and purpose in God's world. So the humans are made to be reflections of God's character out into the world, and they're appointed as God's representatives to rule his world on his behalf, which in context means to harness all of its potential, to care for it, and make it a place where even more life can flourish. God blesses the humans. It's a key word in this book. And he gives them a garden. It's like a place from which they begin starting to build this new world. Now, the key is that the humans have a choice about how they're going to go about building this world. And that's represented by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Up till now, God has provided and defined what is good and what is not good. But now God is giving the humans the dignity and the freedom of a choice. Are they going to trust God's definition of good and evil, or are they going to seize autonomy and define good and evil for themselves? And the stakes are really high. To rebel against God is to embrace death because you're turning away from the giver of life himself. This is represented by the tree of life. And so in chapter 3, a mysterious figure, a snake, enters into the story. The snake's given no introduction other than it's a creature that God made. And it becomes clear that it's a creature in rebellion against God, and it wants to lead the humans into rebellion and their death. The snake tells a different story about the tree and the choice. It says that seizing the knowledge of good and evil are not going to bring death, that it's actually the way to life and becoming like God themselves. Now, the irony of this is tragic because we know the humans, they're already like God. They were made to reflect God's image. But instead of trusting God, the humans seize autonomy. They take the knowledge of good and evil for themselves. And in an instant, the whole story spirals out of control. The first casualty is human relationships. The man and the woman, they suddenly realize how vulnerable they are now. They can't even trust each other. And so they make clothes and they hide their bodies from one another. The second casualty is that intimacy between God and the humans is lost. So they go and run and hide from God. And then when God finds them, they start this game of blame shifting about who rebelled first. Now, right here, the story stops. And there's a series of short poems where God declares to the snake and then to the humans the tragic consequences of their actions. God first tells the snake that despite its apparent victory, it is destined for defeat to eat dust. God promises that one day a seed or a descendant will come from the woman who's going to deliver a lethal strike to the snake's head, which sounds like great news, but this victory is going to come with a cost because the snake too will deliver a lethal strike to the descendant's heel as it's being crushed. It's a very mysterious promise of this wounded victor. But in the flow of the story so far, you see this is an act of God's grace. The humans, they've just rebelled. And what does God do? He promises to rescue them. 
But this doesn't erase the consequences of the human's decision. So God informs them that now every aspect of their life together at home and out in the field, it's going to be fraught with grief and pain because of the rebellion, all leading to their death. From here, the story then spirals downward. Chapters 3 through 11, they trace the widening ripple effect of the rebellion and of human relationships fracturing at every level. So there's a story about two brothers, Cain and Abel. Cain's so jealous of his brother that he wants to murder him. And God warns him not to give in to the temptation, but he does anyway. He murders him in the field. So Cain then goes on to build a city where violence and oppression reign. And this is all epitomized in the story of Lamech. He's the first man in the Bible to have more than one wife. He's accumulating them like property. And then he goes on to sing a short song about how he's more violent and vengeful than Cain ever was. After this, we get an odd story about the sons of God, which could refer to evil angelic beings, or it could refer to ancient kings who claimed that they descended from the gods. And like Lamech, they acquire as many wives as they wanted, and they produce the Nephilim, these great warriors of old. Whichever view is right, the point is that humans are building kingdoms that fill God's world with violence and even more corruption. In response, we're told that God is broken with grief. Humanity is ruining his good world, and they're ruining each other. And so out of a passion to protect the goodness of his world, he washes it clean of humanity's evil with a great flood. But he protects one blameless human, Noah, and his family, and he commissions him as a new Adam. He repeats the divine blessing and commissions him to go out into the world. And so our hopes are really high, but then Noah fails too, and also in a garden. He goes and he plants a vineyard, and he gets drunk out of his mind. And then one of his sons, Ham, does something shameful to his father in the tent. And so here we have our new Adam, naked and ashamed just like the first, and the downward spiral begins again. It all leads to the foundation of the city of Babylon. The people of ancient Mesopotamia, they come together around this new technology they have, the brick. And they can make cities and towers bigger and faster than anybody's ever done before. And they want to build a new kind of tower that will reach up to the gods, and they will make a great name for themselves. It's an image of human rebellion and arrogance. It's the garden rebellion now writ large. And so God humbles their pride and scatters them. Now, this is a diverse group of stories, but you can see they're all exploring the same basic point. God keeps giving humans the chance to do the right thing with his world, and humans keep ruining it. These stories are making a claim that we live in a good world that we have turned bad, that we've all chosen to define good and evil for ourselves, and so we all contribute to this world of broken relationships, leading to conflict and violence and ultimately death. But there's hope. God promised that one day a descendant would come, the wounded victor who will defeat evil at its source. And so despite humanity's evil, God is determined to bless and rescue his world. And so the big question, of course, is what is God going to do? And the next story, The Hinge, offers the answer. But for now, that's what Genesis 1 through 11 is all about. Wow. In eight minutes, they did what took me 14 weeks. We're on a journey reading every verse in the book of Genesis or having it read to us in a video. 
and looking at truths that display the gospel, the roots of the gospel, and they all point to our Lord Jesus Christ. Today we're going to look at this hinge story. It starts at the first part of Genesis chapter 12, the calling of Abraham. In chapter 10, verse 21 to 31, is the genealogy of Shem, one of Noah's sons through whom Abraham came. And then it's reviewed, focusing more on the genealogy in light of the birth of Abraham's father, Terah. Verse 10 of Genesis 11 says, This is the genealogy of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and begot Arphaxad two years after the flood. After he begot Arphaxad, Shem lived 500 years and begot sons and daughters. So you can do the math, see how long these guys lived. They still retained in their genes a superior lifetime uh, that they were blessed with before the flood. Arphaxad lived 35 years and begot Selah, or Salah. After he begot Salah, Arphaxad lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Salah lived 30 years and begot Eber. After he begot Eber, Salah lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. If you go back to the genealogy I mentioned in chapter 10, verse uh, 21, it says, and children were born also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber. Eber is the name through which we get the word Hebrew. The Hebrews, the descendants of Abraham, are called Hebrews. And the word Eber, the name Eber, means to cross over. It points to a, 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 another place. It literally could be translated Passover. It's not the same word used for the Passover festival, but I think it's unique in that their name points to passing over. So Eber lived 34 years and begot Peleg. After he begot Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and begot sons and daughters, verse 18. Peleg lived 30 years and begot Ru. And after he begot Ru, Peleg lived 209 years and begot sons and daughters. Ru lived 32 years and begot Serug. After he begot Serug, Ru lived 207 years and begot sons and daughters. Notice their lifespans are getting shorter and shorter. Serug lived 30 years and begot Nahor. After he begot Nahor, Serug lived 200 years and begot sons and daughters. Uh, Serug points to a location geographically. Nahor means to snore or snort. Anybody married to Nahor? <laughs> Keep your hand down. Nahor lived 29 years and he begot Terah. After he begot Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and begot sons and daughters. Now, Terah lived 70 years and begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. So he named, Nahor must have been a snorer too, named him after his grandpa. This is the genealogy of Terah. Now the name Terah, if you translate it into Akkadian, from Hebrew to Akkadian, it points to someone being the brother of the moon god. Now you know who the moon god is. In Arabic, it's Allah. It always was, even before Muhammad came on the scene and chose Allah to be the name of his deity, of his, you know, monotheistic religion, 
he chose the name of one of the many gods of that part of the world. And the moon god was named Allah. And so Terah is the brother of Allah. Uh, Nahor lived 29 years and begot Terah. After he begot Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and begot sons and daughters. Now Terah lived 70 years and begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. This is the genealogy of Terah. Terah, or Terah, begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begot Lot. Now, that's an important character in the story. Haran died before his father, Terah, in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. So, Haran lived a short life, but he had a son. Then Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and the father of Iscah, and um, the father of Lot. So he married his niece. But Sarai was barren, and she had no child. Now, these people were pagans, all right? You're going to see the beauty of the election and choosing of God. They're pagans. Sarai, translated in Akkadian, is the name of the moon god's female counterpart. After he lied to Pharaoh about her being his sister, not his wife, he lied to someone else, and his explanation was, well, actually, she's my father's daughter, but not my mother's daughter. So if he wasn't lying then, then this gal was his half-sister. Can you say messed up? It's the perfect scenario for God to demonstrate his glorious mercy in spite of us, right? So pagans with, you know, a guy marrying his niece, possibly a guy marrying his half-sister, God chooses them. All right, Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. Okay, Ur of the Chaldeans doesn't sound that special, but it's a very special Ur. There was two Urs at that time. Ur of the Chaldeans was where the bathtub was invented. Can you say luxury? Uh, Some people in Ur of the Chaldeans had indoor plumbing. So they're leaving that wonderful place to go to Canaan inhabited by Canaanites, and rocks are everywhere. So they leave to go there, but they come to Haran, Haran, which is the same name that his son was, and dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Chapter 12. Now the Lord had said, can we say had said, had said to Abram, get out of your country and from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. So here's a sketch of Ur of the Chaldeans in the part of the world known as southern Iraq today. On their way to Canaan, they head north and make a stop in Haran, Haran, and stay there. You ever stop short of what God called you to do? They stopped short. 
in a lot of ways. I mean, Abram was called to leave his father's house, and he stayed with daddy till daddy died. So God calls a guy that's got an obedience issue, didn't he? What was God thinking? Well, why did he call us? Right? So in our story, he journeys down to Shechem and winds up between Bethel and Ai. Let's read on. Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. And then, of course, this land he's going to promise him. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I heard the statistics recently that 0.2% of the world's population are Abraham's descendants through Isaac and Jacob. Jews, right? Hebrews, 0.2%. So that's two people out of every thousand are Hebrews. Yet, when it comes to Nobel Prize winners, 22% of the Nobel Prize winners in the world are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Blessing to the world, blessed people. And this blessing God's pronouncing becomes part of their culture. It takes centuries to do it, where every week at Shabbat, they'll speak blessing over their kids. There's a story of two Jewish mamas pushing their babies in strollers and introducing their uh, babies to one another. And this one says, this is Simon the lawyer. Oh, hi, Simon the lawyer. This is Levi the doctor speaking highly of their children's destiny. What do Gentiles do every Friday night? Get drunk and cuss their kids out. You won't be worth nothing. You're a loser. You're just like your dad or just like your mom. What does that do? That pays off in some kind of negative way, right? All right. You shall be a blessing. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you, here's the gospel, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him. Can we say not immediately? (laughs) And Lot went with him. Uh Uh-oh. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. I wonder how old he was when he heard the call in Ur of the Chaldees. Then Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they prospered in Haran. Haran. So they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem. See that on the map, as far as the terebinth tree of Moreh. Now that may have been significant to the pagans of that day. The historians in the room maybe could tell us. And the Canaanites were then in the land. Uh oh. God called him to go to a place where there's going to be problems. In a few verses, there's a a famine and they have to leave. What was God thinking? He's thinking he's going to make Abraham a man of faith. He's going to call him to do things that are not possible. He's going to call call him to learn to live in spite of circumstances. Verse 7, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants, I will give this land. Now, there's no indication 
that after that first conversation, that first talk, that first promise to Abram, that God had ever visited him again. But now having obeyed, here's the second record. He could have, he could have, but could it be those of us that have heard the call of God wonder why God doesn't speak to us anymore? Well, have you done what he said? Uh, well, not exactly. Well, then why should he come and talk to you some more? Right? Think about it. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants, I will give this land. Sometimes God gives us a promise for our kids. It's a generational promise. Abram never owned a foot of ground in this. We'll see in a few minutes. But it was promised to his descendants. There he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, which one day Jacob would have two divine encounters with God there and named the place Bethel. And he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. That would be a town that would cause some trouble for his descendants. There he built an altar to the Lord. So he's learning to be a man of worship and called on the name of the Lord. So Abram journeyed going on still toward south. We won't look at it today, but by the end of the story, unbelief has taken him to the point he's willing to pimp out his wife. Now, that's a, that's a sensational headline to get you to read the story. It's not exactly what happened. We're speaking today on the subject, the call to obey by faith. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that your word would speak to us, would challenge us, would inform us and renew our way of thinking. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I started out to entitle it The Call to Walk by Faith. You know, we used to sing, I walk by faith to live by faith. We're called to walk by faith and not by sight. If we walk in the Spirit, we'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. But I think sometimes the overuse of a term, we lose the meaning. When Noah walked with God. When Enoch walked with God, did they walk rebelliously or did they walk obediently? So in reality, to walk with God is to obey. But God many times will call you to do things you cannot do without exercising faith. So we're talking about the call to obey God by faith. Not faith in your works and not faith in your faith, but faith in the one who is faithful, faith in the one who promised, faith in the one who cannot lie, faith in the one who made his will known, faith in the one who gave you that word. In the Greek language are two words, probably more than two words, but two words primarily translated as word, the word logos, which speaks of Jesus, and as I understand it, it speaks of language in general, and the word rhema, which speaks of words that are specific. A phrase can be a rhema. And the sword of the Spirit is the word of God. And the word there for word is the word rhema. The rhema, the specific word God gives you, is the sword to fight with. When the angel visited Mary, 
She said, how can these things be? You know, I know not a man. He said, with God, nothing is impossible. Literally, he's using the word rhema. What he actually says, with God, rhemas are possible. Check it out. So Abram gets a rhema. Go to a land, get away from your family, leave your daddy, and I will show you a land. I will bless you, and I will bless your descendants. I'll bless those who curse you, and in you shall be a blessing. The call to obey, but it required faith for him to do it. He didn't have the faith or didn't exercise the faith to do what God said according to the rhema he had received to after daddy died. Maybe daddy put him on a guilt trip. I don't know. But keep in mind, let's not beat him up. This guy is a former pagan. He's a new believer. God has chosen to reveal himself to him. So my first point. God called Abram years before he obeyed him. Maybe you've been walking in disobedience. Maybe you've camped in Haran and haven't gone on into what God's promised you, and you're beating yourself up. Well, God doesn't change his calling. The Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country from your family, from your father's house to a land that I will show you. Terah, the previous chapter, took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they went out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. Maybe Abram got excited, told his dad about the word, and his dad says, well, you're not leaving me behind. I'm going to go too. And then they got to Haran, you know, son, let's just stop here. Let's stop here. They came to Haran and dwelt. In reiterating this story in his personal defense in Acts chapter 7, Stephen said this, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham, that's who he was eventually going to be, while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. So, he received this word. His dad didn't receive the word, he did. Next point. Abram's disobedience did not change God's calling. What are you called to do that you've rebelled against, that you've got sidetracked? Now you're beating yourself up. God hadn't changed his mind. Now the Lord has said to Abram, get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. Did God fulfill this? So he didn't change his mind. Ah, oh, forget it, I'll get somebody else. He didn't do it. Stephen goes on to say, and from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you dwell. So God reminded him in some way, moved him to the land where they dwelt. Next point, heeding God's call will bring blessing to others. Other people were going to be blessed because of Abram's obedience. Who knows what blessing we're withholding in the earth? 
by not being fully obedient. I will make you a great nation, God said. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Stephen goes on, so he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance there, not even a foot of ground. He built altars and pitched tents. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. So we walk by faith because circumstances testify otherwise. Now our flesh, our human nature hates walking by faith. Hate it. Think of Noah. What a journey of faith. A hundred years building a big boat when there'd never been a drop of rain. What an idiot. But he had faith. Obeying God requires faith in spite of circumstances. Hebrews 11 speaks about Noah, and it goes on and says in verse 8, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city, which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. There's a Southern Gospel song that's about looking for a city. <clears throat> he had his eyes on eternal things and not just temporal things. If you're a believer, you're already walking by faith and looking forward to heaven, are you not? Now, transpose that into the earthly realm and start obeying God and what he's called you to do here. And it starts with love. Love is kind. Love is patient. Love does not keep records of wrongs and put people on guilt trips. Obeying God requires faith in spite of circumstances. Obedient faith begins with believing the gospel. Okay, where do I start? Well, it all goes back to Jesus. And here's the first promise of him through Abraham. Galatians 3, 6 through 9 says, Just as Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, so then understand that those who believe are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith proclaimed the gospel to Abraham ahead of time saying these eight words, they are loaded with meaning. All the nations will be blessed in you. That's the gospel. So then those who believe are blessed along with Abraham, the believer. So in our journey through Genesis, we're going to see a man full of doubt and unbelief and fear willing to lie and do other things to sidestep, standing in faith. And yet we're going to see him come to the place 
of obedience where he willingly lays his son down on an altar. And he raises a son who's a man of faith as well, who willingly lays down on that altar. The family through which God would send his son who one day would lay down his life on a tree. For you and I, though he could have called legions of angels, he gave his life for us. Lord, make our hearts an open space where we willingly lay down our lives for you. And Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters that have stopped short of obeying you or have turned back from obeying you. Maybe it's a test of adversity. Maybe it's a test of prosperity. Lord, forgive us for being distracted and help us, Lord, to walk in the calling you've had for us, to live lives of obedience by faith in you, not in our works, and not in our faith, but in you, the one who is faithful, who promises. Lord, make clear to us what your will is. If we're unbelievers, Lord, make clear to us the truth of the gospel so that we can believe. And those that are believers, Lord, remind us of opportunities we're missing to obey you. In Jesus' name, amen. Christian bookstore one day, and to my dismay, I saw it was like a pallet of books entitled How to Get What You Want from God. It was a book about faith, 
and about how to use the power of faith like positive thinking to get what you want out of God, like God, some kind of cash register. This sermon is not about that. This is about what God wants from us, but it requires our faith in him. Years ago, in our early 30s, Yvette's mother came to live with us because she had Alzheimer's. Her father died. He hid, he hid what was going on from us. And when he died, Yvette and her sister go to the funeral. And two weeks later, they bring their mother home. And it was chosen for us to be her principal residence. And her sister would help when she can give us a break now and then. It was tough. It was tough. Hearing the same thing get over and over. We're trying to raise our kids without a television. It drove us to get a TV. Just, you know. And I was determined to get her healed. I was using my faith to get her healed. I was confessing that she was healthy and well. I took her to a Reinhardt Bonnke meeting. It was awesome. They laid hands on her. We served communion to her. We got her in prayer lines. We read the scripture to her. All along, I'm getting angrier and angrier because she's not getting any better. After six months, I had it out with God. I just poured out my heart to him told him all of our efforts. What's the deal? We're too young for this. We're in our early 30s. And once I'd emptied out my self-centered faith theology, the Lord asked me a question. I wasn't an audible voice, but a question burned in my heart. And the question was, do you want me to use you? I knew it was him. It wasn't contrary to scripture. It applied to the situation. I said, yes. Now I'm thinking big stuff. You know, God's going to use me. We're going to get 18 wheelers and tents and PA systems and all this stuff and print books and all that kind of thing. Yes, I want you to use me. Then here came the next little phrase and all my dominoes fell with a crash. Yes, I want you to use me. Then came another question. Can I trust you then? Can I use you to show a sick lady my unconditional love? I broke. My pride, my selfishness became so obvious. I was on my face in the carpet. Fluids running out of my face. I surrendered changed my life, got up with a sense of calling. And my wife can tell you, I was much more pleasant to be around to help her with her mother for the next two years. We didn't know it was going to be two years. It felt like the rest of our life. But had I not had that divine encounter with God, where he strengthened the sense of my calling and he judged my self-centeredness, I wouldn't be here today. you at today? Maybe you're handling something hard and you're resentful. Maybe there's anger, whatever. Let God use you in that situation to show his unconditional love to that job, to that boss, to that co-worker, to that spouse, to that child, to that parent, to that neighbor. Show your unconditional love, Lord, through me, through me. It takes faith to do it, but it's not faith in faith. 
It's not faith in my systematic theology that I've developed, but it's faith in the one who spoke the rhema. I didn't have to work, didn't have to strain, just had to obey by faith in the one who did it. Lord, I pray for every person here that you would reveal to us where we have stopped growing, where we have stopped serving your purposes in our life. In Jesus' name, Lord, let perfect love cast out all fear. Lord, we recognize that your calling could involve planting churches, being missionaries, but Lord, it all is because of love, letting love find its destination through us. And Lord, I'm excited about lives you are changing and you're going to change and continue to change through us and what's going to happen as a result of us living lives of obedience by faith. Amen. Thank you, Lord. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace in spite of your circumstances, in spite of opposition, in spite of lack, in spite of fearful people. May you be strong based on the word he's given you. In Jesus' name, amen. Go get them, tigers, in Jesus' name.